It's pretty fair to say that the last year has been a tumultuous one. We are still living through the pandemic, and we live through the endless news cycles and uncertainties of the American election in 2020. Climate change is still threatening, with dramatic weather happening around the globe. For some of us in North America, this might be our first time grappling with chaotic upheaval, but it certainly isn't the first time that that societies have lived through disruption. Today, we're going to take a look at history to help us understand how societies respond to crises. to Forward, the podcast where we're not afraid to dig into big issues. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. My guest today is Dr. Colin Rose, a professor with the Department of History and a social historian examining conflict in 16th and 17th century Italy. His 2019 book, A Renaissance of Violence, Homicide in Early Modern Italy, published by Cambridge University Press, examines how economic decline, climate-induced drought, and plague lead to the decline of social institutions and the rise of interpersonal violence in 1660s Bologna. Colin also incorporates digital techniques such as databases and GIS or geographic information systems mapping into his uh, research to explore and analyze and visualize large amounts of data. He has also recently taught a new course at Brock University on disasters and we're going to be asking him about that later as well. So welcome Colin. Thank you very much for having me here. It's a Wonderful to finally make the podcast. <laughs> well, you and I have spoken a few times over the past year um, for, for Brock News Stories, and we'll put links to those in the show notes um, so listeners can, can, can read further. Um, but if they, if they haven't been keeping up with the Brock News, can you let us know a little bit about your research? Uh, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I mean, as you, as you mentioned in your introduction of me, uh, my work focuses on the sort of intersections of social instability and violence and uh, climate instability in a, in a particular environment in the past. It's North Italy in the 17th century, which is um, a fascinating time and place because it has all the hallmarks of what should be this sort of stable area, right? This, it has a centralized government um, that's really, you know, not challenged in any serious way. Uh, it has a, a developed guild-based economy. It participates in international European uh, commodities exchanges, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then in the early 17th century, under the sort of weight of a series of crises, um, First and foremost, there's there's the Thirty Years' War uh, that that erupts in North Italy in the 1620s. That brings on and is and sort of exacerbates uh, a series of. of bad harvests and then famines relating to the the general sort of unstable climate of the little ice age and then in in the early 1630s there's a there's a terrible outbreak of plague and all of these um sort of major episodes combined with a, a sort of general uh, stagnation of the economic vitality of the whole region. And this, you know, once vital state of uh, Bologna ends up sort of descending into this, this almost, you know, not, not open civil war, but these civil war levels of factional violence in which 
regional elites are sort of, you know, in the chaos of uncertainty and instability are sort of grabbing for more power and, and jostling among themselves quite violently for um, a new place in, in whatever's going to come after the, the plague times. And that, you know, that plague kicks off a process of about 30 years in which, um, we see heightened levels of, of interpersonal violence, particularly the sort of factional, uh, cyclical, feuding, vendetta-type violence that really characterizes um, the unstable regimes of, uh, of, of the early modern period, rather than what you would expect to see at Bologna, which for, for all appearances is, is very much a stable place, but sort of shatters uh, in the early 17th century. Are those, are those events, like to, to what degree are they kind of a constellation of bad luck and to what degree are they um, cause and effect or feeding off of each other to to destabilize yeah well <laughs> that's probably a bit of a tricky question I mean obviously some of it is some of it is circumstantial right I mean it's it, it's it is a tricky question but it's an important question right some of them are circumstantial right you can't uh, you can't always predict the weather and uh, when when you have a series of cold rainy years and you get uh, poor harvests you know you can't control that um, nor can you despite the sort of public health measures that they do institute in, in at the beginning of, of an onset of plague you can't really control the plague without antibiotics and basic sanitation it's not actually hard but um so some of, some of it is circumstantial right that the bad things are happening but then those bad things are, are reflecting off uh the sort of really structural weaknesses of this society which is uh the sort of underdeveloped civil society that that really lays lays at the foundations of of this society it's built on a um, almost colonial uh, structure almost you know uh, the papacy conquers bologna away from its local magnate local oligarch rulers in the early 16th century and that uh, those, those local oligarchs and their descendants and their allies and their rivals um, all harbor this strong resentment against this this foreign rule this papal rule that that becomes uh, imposed on them in the, in the early 16th century and though some of them try to sort of work within it some of them see having you know advantage for their families in sort of accommodating papal rule uh, there's always this you know sort of uh, the glory days um, when Bologna was free, right? This sort of, uh, the, the, this sort of, you know, dream of Republican freedom prior to the Pope that the sort of lurks under the surface and that sort of underdeveloped, uh, relationship between, you know, the elite classes of this society and, and it's you know, sort of foreign ruler, um, really creates this, this, this deep structural weakness, uh, at the core of, um, of the society, it, it sort of you know inflects all the institutions of the society, which are governed and, and operated by these elites in many ways, but only with their sort of you know half in participation. They're always angling for themselves. They're always angling you know to to, to one up both each other and and the papacy, and uh, so so there's this as I say I mean I, I say it again like deep structural weaknesses uh, that that just limit the strength of uh, any kind of civil society 
to to sort of direct energies towards the the, the good of the state, say, or, or or the common good, or the good of the people. But um, so it's it's a combination of the two, obviously, right? There's there's circumstance, and then there's structure. And and when circumstance hits structure, it's uh, it's it, it knocks down the walls, you know, in many ways. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, public health measures, and and I'm I'm curious um, how. Did they respond to the plague? Were were they able to? Um, obviously, their scientific understanding of what was going on um, wouldn't be quite what we would have now in the modern world. But were they able to respond to people's fear? Uh, take measures that gave them a feeling of control? So there are uh, preventative measures and, and responsive measures um, that, that urban governments in Italy in the 17th century take uh, in an attempt to ward off and then control and then combat plague. Um, uh, on the preventative side, the, the urban, you know, the major cities of Italy each have a quite powerful, usually, you know, pretty well-funded, um, organized by, you know, these, these same elites, um, a health magistracy that is responsible for maintaining the conditions under which, according to their understanding of wellness and health, um, the conditions under which plague will can be avoided. So very often, uh, particularly if there's sort of rumors of plague in other places, these magistracies will organize um, sort of uh, an inquest around the city where they will go, um, they will go particularly to the the poorer neighborhoods of the of the city it's always it's always deeply classist and they will investigate for what they think are the conditions under which disease breeds they'll they'll look at you know are there fleas in the mattresses um are there filthy cesspools or the filthy cesspits um are are the the kid are there too many people in uh small areas um these these there is a sort of developed preventative science uh, that you know identifies a set of conditions that uh, create wellness and health, and 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 seeks to impose those conditions by eliminating. Uh, I mean, what what Mary Douglas would call sort of matter out of place, right? The, the, those the, these ideas of sort of purity and danger, and and where there is dirt and filth, there is danger. Um, on the, the responsive side, once you sort of hear about plague, once the, the urban government has, you know, in, in Bologna in 1629, we hear about plague coming from Germany. And as soon as you hear about plague somewhere on the major trade routes, and Bologna sits right on the major trade route uh, that goes north-south through Europe, um, once you hear about plague on this trade route, I mean, in one, it's a matter of time to a certain extent. But then there's a there's a there's a there's a machinery that kicks in that's developed, you know, very much in the 14th century in the wake of the the initial outbreaks of Black Plague. Um, indeed, the the word quarantine. I mean, you must know where the by this point in in. 2021, you must have heard the origins of the word quarantine, uh, the quarantina, that is the 40 days uh, that ships are required to wait in the Venetian lagoon before they were uh, deemed to be safely clear of plague and allowed um, allowed onto Venetian territory, right? allowed to dock at, at, at Venetian docks. Um, so the quarantine is is very much a the, the, the go-to measure. As soon as you hear about plague, um, you institute you know greater levels, right? green, orange, red, gray. Um, you know these these levels of, of quarantine as the plague gets closer. Right, you start with okay, well you know only commercial travel is coming in the gates. Um, no no you know pilgrims. 
um, you know, no, no, uh, no, no travelers. And again, it gets classist and racist here, right? There's, they always ban uh, Roma people as well. Um, then, you know, once you realize, oh, it's still coming closer, then it's okay. No livestock trade, no cows or pigs or, or chickens could come in the city from elsewhere. And then, you know, when it's, when it's two cities down the road, you shut the whole doors. Um, and, and then, you know, when, when it's the next city over and when you realize it's coming, then it's, then it's a full on curfew, right? Then it's a stay at home order. So at, at first they try and quarantine whole cities, right? They try and, they try and lock out the outside world because they have walls, right? They're, they're, they're walled cities. Um, so they shut the gates, they double the gate guards, they try and keep people out as much as they can. And then when they realize that, you know, this is, this is probably coming here no matter what, then it's a, then it's a stay at home lockdown core, uh, curfew, particularly on, uh, women. Um, the theory being that women, you know, uh, um, did not have professions that required them to be out of the home. So uh, usually women are you know, put under strict curfew in their homes 24 hours a day, uh, which discounts the fact that, you know, many women indeed had much work to do outside the home. Um, not to mention, you know, life in, in Italy is in the 17th century is very much takes place outside the home. Um, and, and so there's all sorts of ways that, that people seek to subvert these, right? And, and as we see in uh, 2020, 2021 as well, um, lockdown orders are, are only so effective as they are followed, right? And uh, in the same way that, that, that we have <laughs> uh, sought ways to get around them and, you know, blur the lines and say, oh, well, it's okay if I just see that person because I did my, did my quarantine time. I did my, you know, they've, they've been apart from everyone and I've been apart from everyone. So, you know, I only went to the grocery store last week and blah, 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 blah. In the same way that we do it, people justify themselves and people, you know, find ways to see their friends and people find ways to carry on their business. Um, and, and so there's always uh, holes in the system, right? Um, the other thing that they do is they have these, uh, in the same way that we're going to see it, right? Soon enough, I expect that we'll see, at least for international travel, some kind of vaccine passport um, that, that, you know, establishes your vaccine credentials to, to in order to, to travel internationally. Um, and in, in, in Europe in the 17th century, they, they have these things in, in Italian, they're called uh, Fede di Sanita, basically a testament of, of health um, or a declaration of health. It's a little card you carry around in your wallet and it says, at least when I left Milan, I was free of the plague. Uh, and it's you know signed by your local government and theoretically it gains you access to um to the next city over and, and eventually those get canceled too, because, you know, the, they realize there's no stopping it. The other thing that they do is, is they set up deliberate plague hospitals, uh, called the, the Lazzaretti, um, after Lazarus, uh, that are, that are treatment centers deliberately for plague victims. This is where you get like a huge degree of sort of sadness and empathy in, in the historical accounts of plague, right? As you read about these Lazzaretti and the, the, the nurses, are, the nuns who are nurses in these hospitals are just, you know, got to be among the most selfless people and, and most uh, generous people in uh, in the historical record. The the nurses and the physicians who, you know, quite willingly put themselves in front of this plague in the same way that um, you know our very own nurses and physicians are working at the brand new hospital here in Vaughan, the Cortalucci COVID Hospital. Um, that there's there are these you know people who, in the face of of great fear and great danger, will will put themselves um, to try and comfort. To try and comfort other people, right? To try and comfort the sick, um, and and so those are the those sort of major uh, measures that the public health takes. Is, is they're not actually terribly different from ours, right? There's a, a system of prevention based on you know trying to maintain conditions of health and wellness and make sure that people are as healthy as they can be at all times. 
Uh, and then there's a, you know, sort of machinery that kicks in probably, you know, much more regular than we are accustomed to of, uh, of quarantine and attempting to sort of limit the spread of disease. Um, and then, then there's, then there's treatment options, um, that, that are sometimes more effective than others. And they have, you know, various sanitation regimes, um, you know, they wash their hands with vinegar in times of plague. That's, that's what the physicians and, and nurses do. Um, the unfortunate thing is that that, that their understanding of plague uh, is is flawed by the, the the flaws in their in their disease theory, right? In their theory of disease, and so even if according to the theory of disease that they practice, everything they should do, everything they do should work. Um, their, their theory of disease is, is not accurate in the sense that we think it is. Although there is this strange thing where, you know, now that we fully understand that, that COVID is an airborne pathogen, um, I always joke that, you know, while the miasmatic theory is, is correct, actually, it's, it's, it's bad air that, that makes you sick. <laughs> I haven't quite convinced people, I haven't managed to convince my family that you can give people COVID by uh, rays from your eyes, but um, they've, they've, they've at least signed on to the miasmatic theory again. So that's good. But this, so there's these, there's these, this, this, it's, it's not actually terribly different from our, from our world in that sense, except for the rays from the eyes. Yeah. Um, I've seen some pictures um, circulating on social media, and perhaps some of our listeners have too, of people who have created their own plague masks, the um, the long-beaked um, masks that would have herbs and, yeah. and that kind of thing um, inside of them. Now, this pandemic, yeah. I think, for the most part, in terms of kind of the general population, is a first-time experience for many of us. Um, certainly on this on on this scale, my understanding is that the the plague was something that came around periodically. That it wasn't just kind of it came and it went and that was it. It was kind of some. It was always somewhere happening in Europe. So for the you know four hundred and fifty years between about thirteen forty five and you know close to eighteen hundred, I think the last major outbreak of bubonic plague in Europe is. Um, in like Western Russia, I think in like 1771 or something, I, the, the exact date escapes me. But um, during that period when sort of plague is is endemic, as they say, there is plague somewhere in Europe in any given year in that, in that you know, 400 odd years, um, there is plague somewhere in Europe. It doesn't, you know, completely ever disappear and then come back, but it, it travels around and spreads around. Um, most areas will see plague three to four times a century. Uh, probably, I, I mean, I often think of it as generational, sort of each generation kind of has their plague. Uh, and each generation, you know, um, there's, there's a couple different strains as there are uh, with, with coronaviruses, um, et cetera, et cetera. So some have different uh, morbidities than others. Some uh, have different transmissibilities than others, um, but they're, they they travel around, and so you sort of see it happening about once a generation, every every twenty five years or so. You can expect to see plague. Um, some some episodes are much worse than others. Some episodes last three months. Some episodes last a year and a half. Some episodes uh, have a five percent mortality. Some episodes have a sixty five percent mortality. Um, so. It, but it never really goes away, like in, in, until very late. And actually, I mean, there there are bubonic plague outbreaks in, in various parts of the world today. Um, we now understand it to be to be a you know a, a treatable bacterial disease that, that you can treat with antibiotics. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so remarkable this thing that was such a scourge on uh, on 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 you know. 
the globe for so so long. Um, actually, you know, with with modern with with the basics of modern medicine can can be pretty much defeated, um, or at least treated quite happily. Anyway, but yeah, so it's it's, it's endemic in in early modern Europe. Um, it's endemic in in much of the early modern world. There's uh, there's recent work out by. Um, Monica Green in uh, the American Historical Review that is shaking up how we understand uh, the Black Death certainly, and um, and then telling us actually to start looking at you know a much more global phenomenon than we, we'd hitherto really considered of. Um, so it's it's not something that you know goes. It's always it's always you know it might be it might be on the other end of the continent, but it's it's going to swing back eventually. So I think the major ones in the major ones in Italy are something like six like in in the late 16th century. There was one like 1554, I think 1576, around 1598 maybe, and then again like 1630. Um, and you know some areas are hit worse than others at those times. Right, like the 1575 hits southern Italy, the 1630 hits uh, northern Italy really hard. It's probably, 1630 is probably the worst plague for, for northern Italy um, in terms of its its mortality rates. I mean, uh, Bologna, my city, gets off comparatively light with 25% mortality. Uh, Parma, you know, two cities down the road, 50% mortality. Venice, 50% mortality. Padova, 60% mortality. Just these these massive death counts. It's it's horrifying to imagine. I mean, just just thinking of the the stress and trauma that we're undergoing right now, and then imagining that you know on a, on a scale much 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 higher. It's crazy. So you look at how this uh, experience experience with the plague, how the what's happening in politics and with the military and with the climate change and how all these things come together and result in one of the highest recorded or perhaps highest ever recorded homicide rates in Europe by 1660? The highest ever recorded homicide rate in Europe. Yeah, that was a shock. The, you know, late in the 17th century, the the urban homicide rate of Bologna was, was 104. And homicide rates are measured you know, per hundred thousand population. So that means that of, you know, in, in a given year, in this particular year in 1660, of of a given hundred thousand pop you know, people in the city of Bologna, one hundred four of them are murdered. It's a bit of a silly number in that sense. There are only sixty-five thousand people in Bologna in sixteen sixty. Um so you know the actual number of of, uh, of homicides is uh, more like seventy something, um, but in the entire province of Bologna, which is uh, much much bigger, you know, hundred two hundred twenty five thousand people, um, all in, you know, it translates to I think there was one hundred forty murders in this uh, in this province of two hundred twenty five thousand people. Um, over the course of over the course of the year, and that's that's still pretty shocking, right? If, if Toronto saw a hundred murders a year, uh, we'd have a major problem. We usually see sixty to eighty, I think. Um, and and Toronto is a city of you know three or four million people, um, so maybe even bigger. I don't, I don't know. Uh, the, the 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 scale of of the violence in the early modern period is seems a little um, shocking to to our minds now because we don't really conceive of 
that commonness and, and that sort of uh, frequency of experience of, of fatal violence, right? It's, it really indicates a society in which sort of violence is part of the repertoire of behavior and, and conflict, right? That it's not, uh, it's not something that, you know, only aberrant people do, but it's something that is wielded quite deliberately by a wide range of people and, uh, and, and a wide range of classes, um, in order to solve whatever problem is facing them, whatever social conflict they're engaged in. How do you figure out the homicide rate? How does one go about um, researching, counting uh, homicides in 1660? So I'm really fortunate to have chosen, I mean, I'm not fortunate. I chose to, I chose Bologna deliberately for this purpose because uh, its archive of criminal records is is unparalleled in terms of its size and its conservation. So my my primary you know um, source, my my major collection of documents is the collected criminal records of the 17th century. Uh, I chose one year of every ten simply because of the volume of the archive. I couldn't do it all, and in each of those years, I, I went through the entirety of the uh, criminal records, which include everything from denunciations, complaints, uh, all the way through, you know, which are, you know, summary justice, you know, dealt with or not, um, all the way through to sort of elaborate long, long time criminal trials with lawyers and defendants and judges, et cetera, et cetera, and executions and pardons. And, um, and so for every given year, I, I read the entirety of the, of the, of the criminal record, um, drew out all of the homicide cases, uh, into a database, um, with their, both their sort of quantitative and qualitative characteristics, uh, and then, and then built my, um, built my research off of the about 700, uh, trials that I found over the span of, of 11 years. Um, the reason that, you know, this is, this, this is probably a very accurate sense of, of how many people are actually killed because it's very rare for a uh, murder not to come to the attention of the authorities, not to make its way into the justice system. Um, at some point, at least, I mean, I, I found a couple, you know, sort of really bizarro cases where someone is, you know, like redoing the landscaping in their riverside property, and they come across a skeleton, and you know, through the the, the forensics of the time, and the, sort of you know, figuring out where it is and uh, size of the skeleton, etc., they trace it back to you know a, a cold case from from eleven years ago or something like that, right? So, so you get the sense that there is an assiduous machine. Of, uh, of, of of at least investigation, trying to keep track of of all of these homicides. Um, it, it would be much less of a reliable count of, say, you know, petty assault uh, or domestic violence uh, or sexual violence. Um, the the sorts of violence that are much less likely to leave an unavoidable. Uh, judicial trail, right? I mean, with, with, when someone is murdered, there's a body, and there's uh, there's an absence in someone else's life, right? That there's there's a kin, uh, a grieved kin of a murdered victim, for instance. So, 
um, it comes to the attention of the court, even if it's only as a denunciation, even if it's only as, hey, I'm pretty sure that guy killed my husband, or hey, I'm pretty sure that guy killed my son. So the the, the, the basic method of, of, of homicide studies is to track down as many homicides as you can through whatever sources are available to you. Um, in, in later periods, you, you want to double check what can be found in criminal records against what can be found in, say, uh, newspaper records or um, other records. There aren't so many of those for the early modern period. I checked in the Chronicle records and, and you know confirmed some, but didn't add any that weren't in the in the judicial record. And then I also checked in the um, the records of executions in the city to to see if there were any uh, any people executed for homicides um, that I had missed. And, and obviously, you know, the court wasn't executing people that they didn't have any trial. Uh, records for so I didn't, I didn't anyway. so I'm pretty confident in the size of my sample um, and and it's 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 more or less a process of reading murder trials so if these murders are being noticed they're being investigated there's even like cold cases um, being looked at like why why is the violence increasing why why are why do homicides go up so dramatically in this period well it's a really challenging um question you ask because uh it's it's i mean there's 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 easy answers and there's hard answers right and and the easy answer is of course um that you know there is this group of recalcitrant elites who uh, see an opportunity in the sort of chaos of the plague and the challenge that that brings to the overall stability of the region to reassert their their hereditary control over the area and, and to reestablish the sorts of rivalries and power politics uh, that had animated their families in the past, right? And that's that's sort of the, the the kind of straightforward answer is that chaos brings chaos, right? Um, the, 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 the plague presents uh, an environment in which bad guy is going to be bad, I guess, uh, and, and, and violent guy is going to violent, um, killer is going to kill. Uh, the, 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 the sort of deeper answer of that, and, and one of the things that in, in homicide studies we look at are sort of different levels of causation, right? There's sort of the immediate cause of a homicide. This guy uh, tried to rob the other guy. There's the, the sort of proximate cause, which is that, well, you know, the plague had happened last year, and so he was really hungry, so he needed to rob that guy. Uh, and then there's the sort of ultimate cause. And the ultimate causes are very hard to get at. The ultimate cause here, I think, um, is that there is this, you know, distinctly weak civil society uh, and, and and a distinct lack of what uh, Randolph Roth and, and other sociologists sort of working in the, the Putnam tradition um, would call social trust. And that's a, that's a a theory I, I hold to quite happily as well. Social trust being the sort of measure of the legitimacy and uh, acceptability of the hierarchies, institutions, organizational systems of 
collective life. That means a a general acceptance among uh, a wide swathe of the population of the uh, authority of government and the legitimacy of that authority, uh, a general acceptance that the social hierarchies of a society are um, if not fair, at least transparent, uh, and that there may be opportunities to uh, traverse those hierarchies uh, in in your in your through your action. Um, a general sense that the institutions of society are working to the benefit of a as wide a swathe of the populace as possible. In, in, in short, it's a sort of trust in the um, collective project, right? The, the collective social, political, institutional project. Um, Bologna fails to achieve that, right? There is, there is never that uh, broad acceptance, certainly not among you know the elite classes who hold a lot of power in the city uh, there's never that broad acceptance of the legitimate authority of the papal state of the legitimate authority of the the the, the, the papal governor of the city of the um, institutions that operate in that governor's name in the name of the pope there's never the uh, acceptance that those institutions are working to the benefit of um, not just the elites of Bologna, but also the, the broader populace. Um, the whatever legitimate authority there is, uh, is is significantly challenged by these series of crises in the in the in the early years of the 17th century because the 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 apparatus of the state proves itself inept at. Uh, confronting and assuaging these crises that hit the city one after another, that hit the whole province one after another, right? Economic decline, uh, war, famine, and then plague, right? You get these, these this one, two, three, four punch um, that really knocks the society on its on its bottom. Uh, and and as they stand back up, they they sort of look at this, you know, papal authority above them and says, look, we 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 this you were supposed to be the you know broad centralized institution, uh, the, you know the the the, the, the power, you know, the Leviathan that uh, kept us all safe in exchange for, you know, no longer having the, the, the freedoms of local rule. Why shouldn't we reassert ourselves? Why, uh, you know, you were supposed to protect the grain supply. Uh, why shouldn't I, you know, fight for my own family's bread? You know, and it happens not just at the level of sort of elite politics where you, these elite families, you know, return to the factional vendetta that organized their communal politics in earlier years, but it happens at the level of, of the, the agricultural workers in the in the rural villages as well that you see much more conflict over resources uh, over over land boundaries um, because there's this declined trust that you could take a conflict over where a, a field boundary is to the local magistracy magistracy and have it fairly adjudicated uh, and so you see a lot more people sort of taking it into their own hands and uh, instead of you know litigating over the location of the field stones just just picking one up and bashing their neighbor over the head with it instead so there's this this is real challenge under the face of these repeated and, and quite shocking and traumatic crises to that notion of a collective project and its and its legitimacy that that social trust what do you see as a historian who, who works with these ideas of, of social trust? 
What what do you see happening right now in our world as we respond with this pandemic? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the question? Isn't that the question? And I will, as I've gotten used to doing in this year, and as you've heard me say before, um, I will preface my answer by saying it is always dangerous for historians to predict the future. I think last time you and I spoke, I was saying there's going to be widespread violence in the wake of the election. Um, that turned out to be relatively tamped down, uh, right? Aside from the March 6th insurrection, which, I mean, historically, that's going to go down as a, as a, as a major um, event, I think. But there wasn't the sort of widespread violence that uh, some of us were predicting and in many ways that, that some people were promising. Um, I, am, I am, of course, very happy to be wrong on that count. Well, there's some things it's good to be wrong about. Well, exactly, right? I mean, I love being wrong about the potential for uh, widespread, you know, social violence in the wake of an election. I mean, that's that's great. Super glad I'm wrong. Um, I was just going to say the irony, uh, of course, is that that was the day that the... Um, I got to get the name right here. The Defense Research and Development Canada released their report on extremism and the pandemic. Oh, yeah. And uh, you and I spoke about about that afterwards um, as yep, well. Exactly. So, so I'm curious how how these ideas of of, of social trust and misinformation um, as well play into what's happening, what, what, what you see happening now, not necessarily what you think is going to happen. <laughs> I'll let you off the hook for that. <laughs> Great. Excellent. Wonderful. I'm always wrong. Um, I don't even know what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow. Um, I can't even guess. Um, I want to front load that I don't think that what we're seeing right now is a, um, is a, is a moment Right. I think that what we're seeing right now is uh, a, a part of probably not, you know, certainly not the end uh, of and, and probably not the beginning of either um, a long process and series of processes that have been playing out in the West for um uh, for 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 decades, really, and obviously the United States right now is the sort of epicenter of this challenge to that collective social project that was kind of instituted in the wake of of the world wars, right? This uh, broad understanding of the legitimacy of liberal democracy, uh, of um, a, a generally collectivist approach to social welfare. Uh, as much as Americans like to think that they're uniquely individualist, much of their their state uh, in the immediate post-war years and up until Reagan, much of their state was geared towards um, the social welfare of, of broad sways of the population. I will not say all because it has there, there have always been uh, race and gender troubles in, in both the United States and uh, other countries in the West, including Canada. Um, but in the past... 25, 30 years, maybe, uh, there has been a much more concerted uh, and and deeper sort of challenge, and I mean that both in an active sense as well as a sort of, you know, environmental sense, to the, the conditions of that democracy. The, basically, the um, terms of that social trust have been transformed by changing demographics, by uh, 
changing population dynamics, uh, changing economic structures, you know, the hoarding of wealth at the upper uh, tiers of society, um, and that the you know the the circle under which a liberal society should be uh, establishing that social trust has gotten wider and wider and wider, and those who were in the original circle in many ways have gotten more and more defensive about opening that that trust up to to, to new people um so that's this is where we see the sort of resurgence of you know white supremacist ideologies and white supremacist rhetoric and white supremacist action in both the united states and canada um and and you know germany and hungary and uh, and all sorts of places where sort of neo-fascist racial politics are on the rise is that there has been this you know post-war effort by states and institutions uh, and and sort of liberal-leaning groups in all of these places, progressivist groups, to um, open up that circle of social trust and and provide a social project, a collective project that, that includes many more people. And um, hateful racial ideologies in many ways have, have rejected that premise uh, and therefore have, you know, rejected the social trust of those uh, of, of that premise and therefore rejected the legitimacy of the institutions that promote that broader project. Uh, this is why, you know, vast swathes of Republican voters can can say that Democrats are evil. Right? Because they don't even recognize the legitimacy of a politics that runs counter to their thinking. And, and Democrats voters can say that Republican voters are, are evil because they don't recognize the legitimacy of their politics in any way, shape or form. I mean, the, the politics have gotten so polarized that uh, there is perhaps a you know too wide of a yawning gap in there to understand how they can even be speaking about the same institutions. Um, this is why we see the rise of, you know, mass delusions like QAnon, uh, where, where people legitimately believe that the globe is run by a vast cabal of, of child traffickers um, because there's just zero trust among those people at all in the legitimacy of the social project, of the state project, of the politics that, that, that exist in the real world. They don't like it. They don't understand it. They don't trust it. So there must be something much different, right? It's this very dangerous moment where um, there, there's a case that needs to be made that uh, there is a, you know, there's reality and, and then there's uh, non-reality, right? And, and reality includes moderate politics of all stripes. Reality includes, um, you know, arguments over budgets. Reality includes arguments uh, over, um, you know, the, the, the extent of, 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 of foreign aid, the, 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 you know, the, the military involvement in various places around the world. Reality doesn't include uh, the notion that, that the, the, the democratic politicians are uh, child traffickers, right? And, and so there's this bizarre um, challenge to the legitimacy of sort of the collective Western project that's been ongoing for years that has culminated now and, and, and see where it goes from here. I don't, I maybe culminate is not the right word that has led to us where we are, where there's these uh, ever entrenching camps of people who refuse to accept the legitimacy of uh, the world. 
right? refuse to accept the the realities around them, and then that. That's not just a you know dissolution of social trust. That's a dilute dissolution of the entire project, right? And that's so 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 that's a that's that's a strange place where we are now. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, the sort of you know broadening of uh, of the ask of people, right? That 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 you're asked to account for more people and different kinds of people uh, in your in your sphere of social trust. Um, but then you you don't see you know then you say well if if the institutions are now going to work for them does that mean they're not working for me and there's a lot of that you know sort of white working class anger that says uh, these institutions that used to work for me public schools um, you know now now public schools are are all about uh, helping out underprivileged people some of that but you know what happened to me so so in terms of, of of social trust is is there a way back from from it being lost and and again I'm not asking you to try to predict the future here but but are there examples places that you've looked at um, even Bologna for uh, for example um, where they're able to rebuild social trust in the wake of upheaval I mean historically I'm going to be honest with you Allison uh, historically there's violence. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the, in, in Bologna, there's 30 years of increasing civil conflict that, that culminates with the mass exile of the heads of households of about half the elite families. Um, in, in England, in the 17th century, there's 10 years of civil war. Uh, right. And, and, and uh, you know, and, and that pattern plays out in a lot of places that there is um, that there's violence. Right in, in in France in, in the 18th century, there's various revolutions, and then again in the 19th century, right? Um, in in Russia in 1917, there's there's revolution, and so uh, and again, like I don't want to predict because maybe our institutions are stronger than that, and then maybe our institutions are going to be able to sort of reestablish legitimacy with people who believe that they're run by Satanist pedophiles. Coups don't often work the first time, and, and I hate to be uh, you know sort of depressing about that but but what we saw on january 6th that politics isn't gone just because joe biden's in office uh and 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 you know just because democrats took power and just because you know a covid bill got passed uh just because people are getting relief checks doesn't mean that the politics that led people to storm the capitol in order to uh, attempt to prevent the counting of legitimate democratic votes doesn't mean those politics are gone um, and it also doesn't mean that that you know that that they're not going to resurge in 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 some context somewhere. I hope I'm wrong about that, right? And 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 I hope that actually they do just fade away, having lost. One of the things that one of the things that I've you know noticed about sort of the the modern extreme right is is that it is not terribly resilient. It does. I mean, it, it, a lot of it is born online, and it turns out it actually doesn't function very well in the real world, um, which is great. But it's it's still a very potent force. So I don't know how the how how to reestablish social trust because um, you know you can give and give and give and give and give, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to change their minds at all, right? And and it's difficult to convince people that that institutions are working for them when they've spent so long being convinced and convincing themselves otherwise. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll check in in ten years. I, you know what? I hope so. I hope that I hope that we can check in in ten years. I hope that'd be great. That'd be great. I'd love to have this conversation again in ten years in a in a stable democratic society where universities are well funded. <laughs> 
That'd be great. Speaking of universities, um, I I just want to pivot for 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 our last our, our last bit here. Um, you ran an exciting new course um, on uh, pandemics and plagues and uh, various crises that societies have lived through. And I was just wondering if you could plug the course for us a little bit. Uh, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, and first of all, so speaking of pandemics, I'm working from home. You're about to hear my children coming in in the background from from playing outside of the park. Uh, so there there will be small people shouting in That's a minute. That's part of life. Um, it's, it's certainly a part of life these days. Uh, the course that I taught, I had planned this and I've been planning it for a few years, this kind of really... Um, grab them when they're when they get their history course on you know like death disease and disaster in 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 history and it was going to be one of these sort of 10 days that shook the world uh kind of courses where i was going to pick you know a plague here and a war there and a natural disaster there and you know whatever and, and sort of have this you know history through the rotten parts course and it was on the books for for fall 2020 we you know in 2018 i had put it on my slate of courses to teach as a as you know my big first year course um and then of course in march 2020 uh we 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 entered our own pandemic lockdown and i sat on it for a month or two and then i realized in, in april or may that i was definitely going to be teaching this course in the midst of a pandemic and I was likely going to be teaching this course to uh, online and I was likely going to be teaching this course. You know, there was 200 plus students in it. There were going to be people who's, uh, who had been sick or whose family members had been sick. There were, were going to be people who had lost family members or friends or, or people they knew, um, you know, teaching a course called death, disease and disaster no longer made sense. Uh, so I, I rapidly redesigned the course um, I would not recommend taking the course that you've been working on for three years and in the space of, you know, three months, uh, redesigning it for your class of 200, moving it online and redoing the whole thing. Um, and, and I called it what I That's call a pretty it. big task. It was, it, was, it was tough, especially I was working at home with no childcare, right? Because I was, I was designing it in the context of a pandemic and daycares were shut down and, and, and there was so much fear in the, in the spring and early summer of... You can't even be anywhere, right? So, so I was at home with my kids just all the time trying to figure out when I was going to get this course done. Um, it was it was it was a it was a rough summer. But the point is, I I, des- I redesigned this course to be called "Life in and After Hard Times: How Disasters Shape Societies," and I built it from the ground up as kind of a coping mechanism for myself uh, and hopefully for my students as well, that I wanted to um, give my students a really long perspective on how often and how many societies had gone through you know, like really sort of earth-shaking disasters and, and you know, earth-shaking disasters. I started with Pompeii, uh, right? I started with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius at Pompeii and how the the refugee communities that survived the, the eruption at Pompeii settled around the Bay of Naples in different communities. Um, and we mm-hmm. moved through uh, different natural disasters, earthquakes, looking at Haiti um, and, and Lisbon and Lima. Uh, and we looked at sort of hurricanes, looking at Katrina. It was a great opportunity, you know, to take advantage of some some recent pop culture when when Disney released Hamilton the Musical on uh, on Disney Plus over the summer. Um, I put the you know I, I went on to the Library of Congress website and found the 
the letter that that Alexander Hamilton wrote to the the, the local newspaper uh, on the island of San Croix, describing his experience in the in the hurricane of um, 17, uh, 17, 17, 80, I think it was. You know that 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 that, that hurricane that 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 letter that. He writes his way out, as he says in the musical. So anyway, I integrated that into it, and, I, and then we went. We moved from there. We looked at some civil wars, and then we spent the last bit of the course. I, I left pandemic and disease until sort of the last third of the course because I wanted to know where we were going to be before I delivered it. And it was it was really, I think, cathartic for it was cathartic for me to teach at least, um, and I hope it was cathartic for some of the students to sort of see the. I mean, in many ways, see the cyclical nature of these things in, in, in past societies and see how there have always been uh, as as much as you know, disease and disaster challenge the structures of a society. There are always, uh, as Mr. Rogers would say, look for the helpers. Um, and, and there's always, you know, sort of built in safe mechanisms, hopefully, that, that help bring people back mm-hmm. in the wake of these things uh, and the way that societies have organized themselves historically in order to come back, um, you know, sort of, sort of taking the opposite tack of a lot of my research that says, you know, what goes wrong? Uh, this was, how does it get right again? And, and so it was, it was really quite, and even if not, not how does it get right again, but at least how do people cope uh, and how do people manage? And so we developed all these themes of, uh, of sort of you know resiliency and and sort of uh, taking care of each other and uh, you know looking looking at what we've lost fondly and looking ahead with hope sort of you know in, in, you know kind of hokey stuff but stuff that I think came really clearly out of the historical record and the historical materials that we were looking at. Um, that I hope my students understood. I didn't teach it the way I, I, I would like to. I mean, I taught it entirely asynchronously online just because it was a class of 200 plus first year students. Um, and, and I didn't want to, um, no one, you know, no one really knew what was happening still in the fall, right? We didn't know what, uh, what, what the fall was going to bring. We didn't know how our student, you know, how many students were going to have internet that would allow them to get online and do seminars where there were so many unknowns still that I just said, okay, let's do this as easy as I can. I pre-recorded lectures. I gave readings. I had a lot of, you know, written assignments uh, of, you know, reading responses and stuff like that. I had a short paper. I tried to keep it as sort of low labor on the students as I could because I knew that everyone was dealing with other stuff. And I just wanted this to be um, sort of a helpful perspective. And and I, I, I hope I hope the students found it helpful. I, I think some did at least. Uh, and, and then I'm, I'm going to do it again next year, you know, hopefully as a retrospective and, and, but I'll do it, you know, I'll try and do more sort of a hybrid synchronous, asynchronous course this time around, um, just to try and get to know people. It's very difficult to teach when you don't get to meet your students at all. I found that hard that I, you know, I only met them a couple times when I, when I had meetings with them over teams and stuff like that. Uh, but, but I think it was, I think it was, I think it was helpful. It was helpful for me. I hope it was all for students. It was tough. Yeah, I think I think students found a lot of it challenging. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, it has been a real pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you as well to all of our listeners. And if our listeners, if you're enjoying our episodes, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever your app of choice is and give us that coveted five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so others can find us too. 
And we'd love to hear from you on social media at Brock Humanities as well. So I will see you for our next episode. Thank you so much for listening to Forward. Find all of our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, rockyou.ca forward slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us as well on your favorite podcasting app so you will never miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is done by Nicole Arndt. Theme music is by Khalid Imam. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for studio and web support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.